The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Welcome to my program. Great to have you along with us. Uh, We're going to go right to the phone line. With me right now is Matt Staver from the Liberty Council. Matt, I know that this has been, as we've discussed in recent conversations, this has been a very uh, exciting time for the Liberty Council. You have had a lot of things that have come over in the favor of the people, in the favor of religious freedom. And so I wanted, if you would, to give us an update on some of the victories that Liberty Council has been able to enjoy. Well, recently we got an injunction, in fact, this week in Rhode Island against the Providence School District that denied equal access to the Child Evangelism Good News Clubs. This uh, organization is an after-school club, generally in elementary, sometimes in early middle school. There are several thousand of them them around the country, and there's actually some in Rhode Island. And there were uh, good news clubs in this Providence School District before COVID. All the clubs were shut down when COVID hit in 2020. And then the other clubs, including new clubs, were allowed to come back on campus after school, but the good news clubs were denied repeatedly. So despite a demand letter, they continued to deny the good news club at the Rhode Island School District. We filed a federal lawsuit, and just this week, we now have an injunction, a permanent injunction, a permanent court order that requires the Good News Club to have equal access to the school district. Uh, This is great great. news for the students. It's certainly good news for the parents. It's good news for the schools and the community because these Good News Clubs are after-school programs. They teach the Bible. They teach uh, good stories about, for example, Joseph not taking revenge on his brothers, even though he could have. And you know the story about him being thrown in the pit. And then in Genesis 50, he says what was intended for evil, God intended for good. And even though someone may have wronged you, uh, don't take it out in vengeance against someone else. So those are the kinds of good stories, character development, through the teaching of the scriptures that these young people learn in these good news clubs. And there, frankly, ought to be a good news club in every school. Good news now is that there will be good news clubs in the Providence, Rhode Island School District. Now, that is one of many court cases that you guys have been working on in the last 12 months. Another one, obviously, has been this whole issue surrounding the vaccine mandates that were out. Give us an update, if you will, on what you see going on now with what you don't hear a lot of in the the news media anymore. They're not kind of talking about the vaccine. It's not quite the talking point that it used to be. What's going on from your perspective right now? now. Yeah, the media wants to forget that it ever happened, but they were complicit in the problem. And in fact, many of them, even some conservative media, like Fox News, for example, they took federal dollars. And, you know, now they're talking about it. But back then, when they were getting all the federal money, it was censoring all of the information that should have been out for the public to consume and to make decisions on. Uh, And now that what we have said back then and continually that they were not safe nor effective, 
That's becoming more evident by the studies and by people's individual experiences. And so they want to pretend as though they never said anything you know, to promote it. They want to just ignore it. The fact is, however, it's still going on with people in several different ways. Uh, though we've gotten the mandate rescinded in the United States military, there are still people that are suffering from that in two ways. One, physically injured individuals that we know of personally. And two, those that have been discharged from the military uh, because they refuse to get the COVID shots, and some of those have lost their careers. Uh, those need to be redressed. We're working on that right now. Uh, we're still litigating some of the issues with regards to the United States uh, military, uh, but the mandate has been rescinded. The employment mandates have been rescinded as well as it relates to the federal employment mandates. But there's a lot of cases still going on. We have uh, cases that we're arguing in New York on behalf of healthcare workers against the state of New York and also in Maine. Uh, we just won a three to zero decision at the Court of Appeals on behalf of healthcare workers in Maine. So we'll proceed with additional litigation in that case to defend those healthcare workers. And uh, we are still working, believe it or not, with organ transplant individuals. And we have about 75 cases of 75 individuals that are dealing with organ transplants. They were on the organ transplant list, and then they were removed from the organ transplant list because they didn't want to get the COVID shot or their donor didn't want to get the COVID shot. Uh, we have been very successful in getting some of those reversed, either getting the institution to reverse course, like Vanderbilt, for example, reversed its position, or allowing people the uh, information network that we've developed to be able to relocate. And some of them have done that, pulled up their roots, and they've relocated to another state to be in a state where they can be near a facility that will provide organ transplants. The good news is we really, in the last few months, have had a number of people who have gotten brand new uh, organs for them. Uh, they have been, um, you know, amazingly thankful and appreciative because this is life and death for them. So the issue still goes on. And then we're obviously battling this on a global scale with the World Health Organization as well that's rolling out its global vaccine passport, not just for COVID, but for anything else that they want to add to the list. And that's a real serious threat globally, including to here, uh, right here in the United States of America, if that doesn't uh, get stopped with the World Health Organization. Now, when that happens, we hear these news stories about the the WHO, the World Health Organization, doing these uh, rollouts and saying that it's going to uh, uh, kind of go along with what uh, happened in America and it's going to be a forced situation. You won't have an opportunity. And then we hear news that uh, the, the current administration is leaning into kind of giving up American sovereignty when it comes to our own health organization here. Do you feel that uh, the trajectory, Matt, is such that we're on course for that kind of a collision with, with uh, the World Health Organization? Or is there a chance that that won't happen? No, I think we're uh, very much on a course collision with that situation. Uh, this administration, the Biden administration, is really the leading global entity that's pushing for uh, giving more authority to the World Health Organization so that it would move from an advisory agency to a legally binding entity on all 194 nations globally, including the United States of America. So that's in the works, and that's uh, the big push behind the um, the march to giving up 
sovereignty. And the reason I think you see that is because Joe Biden has lost uh, many times over and over in the courts with regards to the various COVID restrictions. So if you move this to a global system, you literally go outside of the American judicial system, outside of the American courts, outside of the legislative process, and you put that into the hands of a single individual, the Director General Tedros of the WHO, who then declares a public health emergency. A public health emergency can be anything that is a threat to public health, which includes not only a pandemic, epidemic, but it also includes access to abortion. So states that have these laws that are restricting access to abortion in the WHO's mind can be a public health emergency for which they would then get involved. And it can also be anything under the broad rubric of climate change. That means the WHO can get involved in anything, uh, whether it's travel, imports, exports, production, the pandemic treaty that is in the works right now, along with the 307 amendments to the international health regulations, those would give enormous unprecedented authority to a single agency that would really become, frankly, a one-world government with binding legal authority on the United States of America. Mm. So this is a real serious threat. We've been working with members of Congress to alert them to this issue, uh, but it's a threat that is very serious, and they are moving toward an ultimate vote on this in May of 2024 in Geneva. Now, I want to talk about uh, another issue that would, I believe, be on the hearts and minds of people, and that is the uh, administration's move, apparently even silently and kind of in the background on the issue of currency and, and see if there's anything that Americans can do to kind of uh, stave off that. But before we do that, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier, and that was the process that you're going through on this vaccine stuff of uh, the people that were affected, maybe lost their job, lost their salaries, lost their even their careers because of the vaccine. You mentioned that you're redressing the issue with that. How how likely is it that people who uh, maybe lost their job could ever see that reinstated? Well, those who lost their job uh, have hope because there's just a recent Supreme Court case uh, that was handed down on June the 29th, and it was involving a U.S. postal worker. It overruled a 1977 terrible Supreme Court decision called Trans World Airlines versus Hardison. In that particular case, in fact, the whole 70s court, that's the 70s decade out of which Roe versus Wade came forth. That's the decade of Lemon versus Kurtzman that perverted the First Amendment Establishment Clause, Free Exercise of Religion, Free Speech Clause. That's the decade of the affirmative action for school admissions. And it's also the decade where the court gutted and they weakened protections for employees in the workplace under Title VII with regards to religious accommodation. That was overruled. That was overruled. And so that gives a lot of extra new life to cases involving religious discrimination in the employment area, particularly with regards to the COVID shot. So individuals that have been terminated, they have faced uh, their loss of jobs. If they have already filed an EEOC complaint and they're in the process, uh, there's hope that they'll get redress. And if they have any questions, they can contact us at lc.org. That's lc.org. You can also fill out a legal help tab right there at lc.org as well.
Oh, that's so great that you guys are doing that. And I know it's a battle. And, it, you know, just hearing you say earlier, you numbered about 75 cases that are in one particular area. Uh, I cannot imagine how many individual cases you guys are like being asked to give your help on, but it is massive. And the people I know who get help from you are, are you're, you're giving this to them. And I, I know that people who would like to donate to LC, how can they do that, Matt? They can go to Liberty Council's website, lc.org, just two letters, lc.org, lc.org. And right there on the front page, there's a donate tab. You can click that and donate directly to Liberty Council. You can do a one-time donation. You can do a recurring monthly donation. All that's easy to be set up right there at lc.org. Click the donate tab right there at the top of the web page. And Liberty Council is a 501c3 tax-exempt organization, so contributions to Liberty Council are tax-deductible. That's wonderful, and I hope people take a full advantage of doing just that. Matt, I know we've got just another a little bit, but I want to go back to this thing that I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, the stuff we're hearing about reset, though that's a word that we're hearing about, the great reset, a currency going all digital. And I can't think of a, of a more upsetting piece of news that could rob people's freedoms in our country if, if on a whim— uh, the administration up and changes our whole dollar system. What do you see happening on this down the road? Yeah, I think that's a real big threat. Uh, this is happening globally, and the administration under the Biden administration is pushing it as well. In fact, uh, Joe Biden issued an executive order uh, last year uh, regarding the digital currency, and that uh, included uh, wanting to make the digital currency uh, very amenable to climate change and equity. In other words, when you're talking about equity and digital currency, how is that different than a credit card? Well, the credit card, while you have a piece of plastic and you put it in and there's you know, a digital type of transaction that's taking place in your bank, it's your bank. And your banking is private. And it's between you and your bank. Digital currency removes the private banking system, puts it all under the federal, and it's all electronic. And so the federal government knows everything about every one of your transactions. It becomes your bank. Everyone has the federal government as the bank. What that means is the federal government can encourage people to make purchases, discourage them from making other purchases. They can create a line-item veto. So, for example, if the federal government, under, quote, climate change, says that you've already driven enough miles this month. Well, when you go to the pump and you start to fill up your gas tank, all of a sudden your gas gauge stops at $5 and it won't go any further. Well, that's because there's a line item veto that's been placed on you. You've already had enough gas for the month, so you can't have any more. So your credit card will not be good to purchase anything beyond what the government tells you that you're able to purchase you want to contribute money to an organization that the administration says, no, that's a hate group or that's a, a religious group, uh, then your, your transaction won't go through. Equity. Equity means that your, your dollar now can become 75 cents, and that extra 25 cents gets pushed over to somebody else's uh, account, so now their dollar becomes a dollar 25. That's kind of like a reparations. That's a redistribution of wealth. All of that is possible under this digital currency. It's more than just a cashless society. It is a centralized bank controlled by the government that can force people to spend 
prohibit them from spending, make a line item veto over certain expenditures, and then literally just wipe you out from existence. Think about what happened to the truckers in Canada when uh, Trudeau came after them. Their bank accounts were frozen. People that ultimately contributed to them, their bank accounts were frozen. A digital currency would allow that to be uh, done on a massive scale. That's unreal. When you think about, again, the loss of freedom and the loss of even people's hard-earned savings and all of that, it, it, it feels so dystopian and big brother, doesn't it? It does. It, you know, what you're seeing is an attempt to take over individual uh, autonomy and sovereignty and freedom. You know, yeah. the scripture says, uh, for freedom, Christ set us free. And there is in, you know, Christianity uh, and our understanding of the Lord setting us free, this freedom where you're free from sin, you're free from the shackles that bind you. That freedom that we experience in relationship to Christ, that's our freedom that the soul longs for in other things as well. That is the opposite of a totalitarian regime. And that's why Christianity is always the first target because it is the bastion between, it's the wall between the tyranny of government and the freedom of the individual. And so what we're seeing is this attempt to globalize and centralize and take away individual sovereignty and freedom from the individual to place it, not what the founders did, in the hands of the people who ultimately have the rights from God directly, and then they loan certain uh, rights or responsibilities to the government to protect their freedom. Mm -hmm. Instead, what this does is it makes government God and makes government the dictator of everything. And so that's what, whether it's the global vaccine passport, tracking and tracing, or whether it's the digital currency issues that are taking place, they all have the same goal, and that is to repress the human spirit, to repress the individual who's made in the very image of God. So we're working with members of Congress uh, in Washington, D.C., on the state level as well, and we're also working in the courts to continue to make sure that we still have our freedom intact, not only for future generations, but for this generation as well. Matt, I just want to say thank you on behalf of all of our listeners. We, uh, as you know, have Freedom's Call as an everyday part of our station. And the work you're doing, uh, you're fighting not what is now. We know it's not just a conspiracy theory. There are things out there that would have been kind of categories as that in the past. And it's, uh, it's reality that you're dealing with. So thank you for doing the hard work and fighting the good fight, my friend. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. Matt Staver from the Liberty Council, and we'll be back with more of Afternoons with Mike coming up in just a moment. Pastors and financial leaders, do you need expert accounting or tax help? Do you have payroll or 1099 questions? Do you need a ministry expert to help you acquire real estate for your next project? If the answer is yes, yes, and yes, visit PetraWorldwide.org. Petra Worldwide has been strengthening ministries to transform humanity since 2007. Visit PetraWorldwide.org or call 855-481-9095. Palm Beach Atlantic University Orlando offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. 
All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. Back again here on Afternoons with Mike and in the studio with me, a couple of buddies that I've just grown to love. First of all, my friend John Crossman, who now has his show in podcast form and it's distributed through The Shepherd. And John is a really a four-year friend now since moving back to the Orlando area. John, it's great to have you back on my Mike, program. Mike, uh, you're a blessing to me. I appreciate all the coaching and wisdom you give me and uh, always honored to be here with you. Well, thank you. And John's friend, that has become now a, a, a friend to me, and I really love being around this guy. John Martinez, a school teacher, but also a very expansive in the area of life coaching and speaking to businesses and corporations. He has uh, a wealth of wisdom, and John has told me so much about uh, the, his friend John, John Crossman, speaking of John Martinez, and I've just, I believe it. I have, uh, I have bought on, man. This is it. Welcome to my program, John. Thank you so much, Mike. You know, you guys are here, and I got to be the proverbial fly on the wall during this um, a, a taping that we did for John's podcast. And listening to some of the hard questions that he asked you, uh, I had one. It's not uh, in, in the same line, but since you get to do both things, you speak to young people as a school teacher, yeah. and then you also address adults, obviously, in all of your coaching with all the stuff that you do on business. So you deal with generations. And my question to you is, are you finding it more difficult in 2023 to be across generations and you're approaching them than it was, let's say, 10 years ago? That's an interesting question. You think of all that's gone on, the last, gone on in the last 10 years with COVID and the political unrest, I, I would say that the answer is no, Mike, and and mainly because at a heart level, we all have the same hopes and fears. We all have the same uh, emotional language, mm-hmm. and so in a lot of the work that I've done is I've gotten. This sounds kind of out there, uh, but you get in touch with your inner child. I know it sounds crazy, it sounds, but there, there's I heard uh, that one in a so, while. So when you, you think about like uh, older men who have very, uh, who, if they don't get if their schedule gets knocked off, they literally are like a five year old, like they throw a tantrum hmm. because it's there's something deep in them that like if I need this at this time or I my world starts falling apart. At a very deep level, we all our children and somewhere along the way, some, some of the wounding we received, which we all did in this fallen world uh, makes us approach the world in certain ways. And when we can get back to some of those wounds or some of those things that happened to us and we can understand how it uh, affects us as adults, it's so helpful for the business guy, mm-hmm. uh, for the business leader. So I work with kids all the time and they're, they don't have as many wounds and they're more in touch with their heart and their feelings. But when I work with adults, it's really the same stuff. Hmm. Tell me, uh, I feel blank because of blank. If I can get an adult to answer those questions the same way I can get a third grader, I can, I can help them figure out how to get better. 
how to get healthier. And, and for the business guy, he's trying to figure out how to get healthier to be a better leader, maybe in his home, mm-hmm. maybe in his business to be more successful. But that's what it comes down to. Like it's the same heart, whether you're 58 or eight. So many people that I've talked with and John, I know John Crossman. I've got two Johns here in the uh, room with me. So I'm going to have to differentiate John Crossman. You work with multiple generations as well in Mm -hmm. your real estate company, because on one hand you're dealing with legacy companies and buying real estate properties and, and seeing all of that. But you also deal with a lot of young people. Your love for college age students is obvious. Mm -hmm. You award all these uh, scholarships at so many different universities. What's that like for you dealing with these differences in generations? So I would say that one of the things is with college age kids today, you know, sometimes they get a bad rap. I mean, there are some things they could, they could get better at. There's no doubt about that. And sometimes they're, they're sort of expressing feelings too much, right. In the workplace a little bit. On the other hand, um, they do a brilliant job, frankly, better than our collective generations at knowing what they're feeling. And so sometimes the, the, they're better coachable uh, because of that, which is interesting. That is interesting. So I like that. Um, you know, I always think you need to be aware of your audience, you know, generationally, you know, socioeconomically, demographically, and that's always key in being thoughtful. But I do, I do have different employees, different generations, and I do coach differently. I do want to say this, Mike, just to, on, on the same thing, just related to John Martinez's comments. Um, I know people who are the generation older than me, who are Republicans, who will say, I can't comprehend how a, how a Democrat is a Christian. And in the same day, I will talk to a Democrat in the same age group who will say, I don't understand how a Republican be, can be a Christian. Hmm. I mean, people that I bet you I could put on a park bench next to each other and could agree on dozens and dozens and dozens of issues and then get like into that space. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think that um, uh, having the ability to talk about from a feelings component, you then can a lot of times create unity, right? So like if you get to the point of like, hey, uh, well, do you think it's important that we help young people? And both sides can say yes. And like, okay, well, let's talk about programs and things we can do. It's when it starts just spiraling out of control, it becomes this crazy thing. But I, but I am intrigued with that. And so when I think when they're younger, a lot of times they're just a little bit more open Mm-hmm. And as sometimes when they get older, they get hardened, but speaking in that same John Martinez's language helps kind of try to make the connection. Yeah, that's great. John Martinez, how is it that you came around this, you know, this awareness or this ability that you have to offer these bits of wisdom, advice, and become actually somebody that is sought out as a coach? How did that happen? That's a long story, but in a nutshell, Mike, it really came because of my own failing, my own or my own my own need to get healthier. I eleven years ago I went to treatment for six weeks, a treatment center, mainly because of depression. I was starting to think that it might be better to to not live. Mm. You know, maybe better to die in a tree to stay in the situation I was in. And uh, I'm very glad that when I needed help there were folks to help me. Yeah. And so I grew up very religious. I grew up, uh, and I would kind of describe it as a paint by numbers world where if you do X, Y, and Z, everything should come out rosy. Right. And I did X, Y, and Z and it was a train wreck. 
So I had to figure out a different way to to live in this tragic world to be healthier and and not be that depressed and not have the idea yeah. that this this maybe this life isn't worth living. And so I six six weeks in, in treatment made some very difficult decisions going forward and then just worked really hard in some recovery spaces, getting a lot more help for years and Mm -hmm. still do. I'm still part of those groups. So basically when I was at a moment of crisis, people really helped me figure out how to feel my feelings and tell my truth, which I was unable to do up to that point, honestly. And now basically I just give other folks what folks gave me. I mean, that is such a, as simple as that is. That's it. And yet it's profound, isn't it? That the Bible talks about freely you've received, freely give. And so that's what you're doing. That's truly amazing to see that principle uh, kind of play out. You know, uh, I'm reading a book right now by Timothy Keller, who we just lost recently. Uh, pastor in New York City, just a great guy, Redeemer Church. And the book is uh, called Center Church. And it's really it's really helpful on chapter five, I believe it is. He deals with this thing of, of, of the people feeling like what you talked about. You described it as a paint by number. You know, the religious, he talks about the difference in the irreligious yep. and the religious. And which is the two of those two, which is the easiest to reach with the gospel because in some ways both of them would feel that they have the gospel already. GK Chesterton said he'd rather take the gospel to the isolated fishermen across the planet who'd never heard the gospel at all versus the person who grew up in the church and thought they knew the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. One group thinks they have it. The religious people, the other group they're they're happy because they don't know they need it. And yet both of them seriously need the gospel. Their needs are the same. They're lost Mm -hmm. on both sides. But uh, of the two of them, it would seem the more dangerous one would be the religious group, right? And that's what, that's where I was. Yeah. Super religious. Do you you remember the, uh, your musician, Mike? The, yeah. the super group, the monkeys. Remember oh the monkeys? my word. I love the monkeys. It broke my heart as an adult to realize they weren't playing the instruments. I, John, I, I, I can't believe you're saying this. Yeah. It was crushing to me. I mean, I'm like, I saw them playing. Oh yeah. We <laughs> saw they them. They weren't playing. You know? They're the original Millie Vanilli. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Exactly. I mean, they were singing, right. Okay. You know, but they, but like uh, Mickey Dolan's, it wasn't, he was playing the drums. Right? Yeah. Uh, Mike and, Nesmith and, was a real musician. He was, though he was. He was, but but uh, when we would see him play like Last Train yeah. to Clarksville, that was not Michael Nesmith playing that. It was yeah. a studio musician. Yeah. So um, they had a song uh, that Mickey sang, and it was uh, Another Pleasant Valley Sunday. I love Char- that Charcoal song. burning everywhere. Yeah. And when I'm, do you know that song, John? And it's just, it's sort of, ma- it's making fun of the suburbs. You know, it's yeah. in that area okay. of like, like how hard life is and kids don't understand that kind of stuff. And when I first moved to Baldwin Park, I would think, well, it's another Pleasant Valley Sunday. It's kind of like that was kind of that, that. But there is this context, how you grew up. In some ways I grew up, it's like, man, you know, like, you know, you go to church and you work hard and you, you know, you vote this way and you tithe and you get a college degree and you get married and have a baby. Like there's click, 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 just click. Be, and just be nice. And just be nice. Yeah. And just be this person that pays your taxes and show mm-hmm. up and you do uh, parking lot ministry or whatever. And then, and then you get older and you die and that's life. Life's great. Right. And that all works until, you know, tragedy strikes, right? There's a, and the, the musical, um, um, ragtime, 
uh, and the, that's, you know, takes place in New Rochelle, New York in 1905 or whatever. And the man goes away down to sea and he leaves this list of 10 things for his wife to do. Here's the rules, what you need to do while I'm gone. And, uh, you know, on day two, she finds an abandoned black baby in the garden. Well, that's not on the list, right? And so I think that's some of the things that John and I have experienced in our own lives that, you know, we did, I think, a lot of things right and well. But then we had some things like, we found a baby in the garden. That's not on the list. It's not on the expected list (laughs) of uh, things you're going to check off. Yeah, that's not on the Pleasant Valley, you know, Sunday list. And so, well, then what do you do? And then having to learn to expand our resources um, to recovery groups or um, you know, if it's Al-Anon or other things that can provide resources. And it's not, it doesn't mean that our Christian church things are, are not good. They're wonderful and they're important, but we have to add things or, or seeing a doctor, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. There's so much growth and so much good that comes from struggle. If you look at the first 150 years of our country, what, what made America great? The struggle. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we, on paper, we shouldn't even have started like yeah. we should have never been able to even get going. So for the first 150 years, it's struggle. And post-World War II, we start to get a little, a little wealth, a little leisure, a lot less struggle. Guess what uh, ha- happened almost overnight? People started feeling sadder and more depressed. Yeah, Their life lost meaning. And you look at the, uh, the church in the world, the American church doesn't have as much struggle. Where is the church blowing up? It's in areas Mm -hmm. of communism or where they're having to go underground or have home churches because there's so much struggle. Right. So the blessing in my life was that that struggle came and and I was able to get the help I needed. Well, that sounds just like what happened in the book of Acts when persecution came to the church. And, you know, it's so easy. And I think it's human nature, is it not, that when people get comfortable, yeah, they, they really start becoming less productive. And I had a teacher one time in a class that I was taking, was talking about early America and when the pilgrims came over. And, and they, she was talking and bringing up this kind of a scenario of the blessing of landing on Plymouth Rock rather than at St. Augustine, Florida. Okay. Because in their mind, if they would have gotten down here, productivity would have been so much less because... People who were living in in Plymouth Rock and in that uh, climate, you had to work a lot a lot harder to stay alive in the wintertime in that era than you did down here. And they talk, and she was bringing the point. I'd never heard the point before that people are more productive when there is a problem, when there is yeah. a a serious need. So that that is a good point to think on. Yeah. Like we, how do we approach a difficulty? When well, something happens, I mean, do we see it as a blessing or is it a curse? Well, and, and here's the thing. I don't think there's wrong with feeling two things, right? You know, I'm in a period of struggle and transition right now and, and I hate it. I hate it. And I wish I could wave a wand and be gone. And I'm grateful for it. Both. And yeah. I know it's good for me. And yeah, that's right. I know it's sharpening yeah. me, right? Like it is absolutely both. Um, and so both can be true. And so we're not masochistic and we're not like, you know, oh gosh, this terrible thing's going on. We're having fun with it. You know, uh, it, it's like when we lose somebody. And so, you know, sometimes we're like, oh, this person died. We're having a celebration of life. Yeah. And you can cry and cry and cry too. Yeah. Like both those things are true. You can, you can go to the well deeply. And so, I mean, 
that that's a hard concept, I think, for some Christians. I agree. I agree. Man, I tell you what, John Martinez, when you look back at your teaching, and what, what would be the most fun thing as a teacher that you you get to look forward to every year when you're starting a new season? I love meeting the kids. Uh, I've got a, a, a theory that in teaching, if you win the heart, you get all the rest. Like if you can win your kids' hearts, your students, uh, by connecting with them at a deeper level, by making it fun, you get all the test scores and all the the growth you're you're looking for. You know, one of the things I love most right now is we have butterfly gardens at our school. I love kids. I love taking kids to nature. Mm-hmm. I had a kid this summer who had was at first afraid of butterflies. He thought a butterfly would bite him. Like he would run and hide from the butterflies. And then by day two, he's asking, can we go find the butterflies and the butterfly eggs? And then there's a, there's a quarter acre wildlife sanctuary at our school. Think of how big that is. Quarter acre wildlife sanctuary. That's a big one. Has yeah. some growth. And when I took the kids through there this summer, they were like, this, this is the first time we've ever been in the woods. And so for me, it's working with kids who are in a city where it's not safe to go outside a lot of times in, the, in their neighborhoods. Good parenting is stay inside, play video games. We get we have this big backyard where we get to take kids to to the the beauties of creation. I'm sure your kids that you're exposing to this kind of life, they're not learning that through video games. It's going to take an adult like you, somebody that cares about their lives, and push them out into the outdoors and see the great nature, the gift that God gave us. You know, when I was growing up, we had none of that stuff to stay indoors. We spent all of our days outdoors. And yet you're getting to do that for the kids today that you teach. And I appreciate that, my man. All right. I'm about out of time. John Crossman, thanks for spending the time. And John Martinez for kind of hanging around after the taping that we did with John on his show. John, your your programs, you've got two of them on podcasts, the CEO edition and also the Crossman Conversation. Thank you for what you're doing to our community, to the state of Florida, and because your reach goes way beyond Florida. You're touching people all over. We're trying to, trying to make an impact. Mike. Uh, Thanks for all you're doing. I appreciate you guys. And we'll be back in a moment. This is Afternoons with Mike right here on The Shepherd. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, EC Waters is a top train comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. Welcome back for segment three. We're going to go back into the archives. Just a couple of months ago at the NRB, had a chance to run into an old friend, Rick Eldridge. I had him on my program when I was at WAJL Radio in 1986, I believe it was. And we ran into each other again at the NRB. And it's all about the new movie coming out. And here we are. We're talking about it right now. The movie's called Never Give Up. It's great to see you again. It's good to be here. Man, it's it's so much fun to get to run into you. Last time I was with you, uh, you were with Pat Boone. That's right. Yeah. And so uh, that film was The Mulligan. Right. And now we're talking about a film that's coming out called Never Give Up. Right. And so tell us a little bit about the folks you have with us. Well, we have the uh, the subject matter by which the story is told, which is Brad Minns. Uh, Brad is a, a remarkable man who became deaf at age three. And uh, through through that, his uh, his parents decided to 
allow him to lip read rather than sign and uh, taught him how to play tennis to help him kind of socialize with people and have something to do besides be in his room. And uh, he became pretty good at it and uh, made it to the University of Toledo as a scholarship player. Uh, his coach introduced him to the Games for the Deaf, which uh, is uh, the, the World Games, uh, gold medal, you know, just like the Olympics. And uh, he met his first deaf person uh, at the uh, at the tryouts, really, for the World Games, uh, which was kind of an interesting thing because uh, he's in the middle, you know, between the the hearing world and the deaf world. He doesn't sign, and uh, and he can't hear. So and he is, was he was to, caught it, in the middle of all that. Is there any hearing at all, or is it completely deaf then? It's. Uh, I'll let let uh, Brad answer that. Uh, and and I, it's great to have Brad with us here. And then also I have the director. Uh, Rob happened to be in town, too, for NRB, so uh, you got all three of us. You got the full team here. And that's Rob Lose. But, say. Brad, you can answer that question about hearing. Did you hear him? Yeah. yeah um, well, I wear two hearing aids, and with the hearing aids, I can hear some sounds, but I still have to read lips and put the sounds and the lips together for a message. If I take my hearing aids out, I'm completely deaf. I can't hear a thing. I'm 100% deaf. But with the hearing aids, I can hear some sounds. You know, I'm just so amazed at the way technology has helped uh, with things like this. So you hear the vibrations and that does help. But obviously he said uh, you, you read lips. So how did that get taught to you? Just by showing up and, uh, you know, watching and learning and going to a speech therapist as I was a boy. And, um, you know, they, they teach you how to uh, distinguish between different sounds and how to, you know, read lips. Um, but it was just a long process, and uh, I, I understand some people better than others, depending on uh, uh, the way they move their lips, right. or if they have a mustache or a beard or something like uh, oh, that. Oh, I'm in trouble because I have a goatee here. One yeah. of my, uh, <laughs> my first coaches from Toledo, his name is Jim Davis, and uh, he had a, a mustache that covered his lips. <laughs> Oh, and, that's right. And, uh, yeah. So I would have to kind of bend down and look up under his mustache and try to figure out what he was trying to say. So the way I learned to play tennis mostly was from imitating and watching what the coach and what the other players were doing. That's something. Because I know that there is so much to learn about tennis and thinking about the fact that even having the auditory loss of the sound of the ball hitting the racket and that's not there. I mean, that uh, it's it's well, got to be different. Yeah, well, I started, um, you know, as I said before, I grew up in the hearing world, so I played in all hearing tennis tournaments, USTA uh, tournaments, uh, University of Toledo um, tournaments and things like that. But when you, what I learned when I uh, played in my first World Games for the Deaf, I learned that you cannot wear your hearing aids. You have to take your hearing aids out. Oh. And so I didn't practice without my hearing aids and uh when i got there they said you have to take your hearing aids out and at the fir at first it's tough it's challenging your balance is you know um challenged and just hearing the rack the ball come off the racket yeah. there's a lot of challenges with zero sound you know there are so many things that that uh, affect our balance like that just like our ability to respond correctly in life i find when i take my glasses off i don't hear as well 
<laughs> that's funny now I'm you know that is that is uh doesn't make a lot of sense to me but I think you're just doing amazing and for our listeners Brad is here again reading my lips as I'm talking we're sitting across the table it's in times like these that I wish we were uh, also a video uh, operation and being able to show what you're doing it's just amazing to watch you do this Thank you. Thank you very much. I owe that to my parents, my mother, my upbringing, and uh, all the support, love, and sacrifice they've given me, and the never-give-up mindset. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Oh, my goodness. All right. Uh, That's not terribly far from where I did. I was from Indiana. So that's great. Well, we also have Rob. Uh, Rob Loss is here with us. He is the director of this film. Uh, What's it like uh, to be on set with these particular circumstances? It was a challenge, I tell you, because we... This is the first tennis film since... uh, Well, in this this century, to actually use real equipment and real tennis balls. Like, the things you've seen, like Wimbledon and other ones, had CG balls. That's all all orchestrated. It's all choreographed. It's like a dance move, and all the balls are CG. We're all real with all real equipment. So getting the right actors to play and the you know and the right equipment to work and everything to do was a challenge it was a, it was a big film luckily we had Brad along Brad's a tennis professional to this to this day he's a teaching professional isn't that and something, which yeah. is pretty which is pretty amazing uh, but it's it's really it's it's an amazing film that captures that the real aspects of tennis as well as there's a great family story when he's talking about how his parents help him and it's it's really a, a great it's a testimony to not only just Brad but his family of how they got things done. Now, how did you get into this whole thing of directing? Well, I'm I'm a writer director, so oftentimes I'll um, I'll the writer director writer produce what I've done. So I've been when I was seven years old, uh, you know, I pointed the television set and said that's what I want to do when I grow up. And so my mom bought me a director's chair, and I've been sort of doing parts of it ever since. Isn't so, that something? Yeah. So that was in Ohio. So I'm also from Ohio. I'm so from, there was a lot of imitation going on in your yeah. life as well. You learned by imitating them. I learned to, to make it work. So, yeah, I'm Akron Canton, Ohio. He's Toledo. So we, we, you're Indiana. We cover it all. That's right. We're in the Midwest. Rick's, Rick's the... wife's from, from Columbus, so we've got it all happening. <laughs> That's right. Let's go back to Rick for a moment. This is a Rick Eldridge production. And, Rick, I know that uh, I was here, I guess, a, a couple of years ago, it was, that you received an award for the uh, movie that, that came Came out right. uh, uh, that was before the the Mulligan, right? And that was such a great thing for me to watch. Well, I was in the you. I was in the audience, and here you are getting <laughs> a, a awarded. How many films like this does uh, Never Give Up make for you? Thirty one. Thirty one. Thirty one. Uh, I've done about sixty animated titles across multiple series, uh, but as far as features, dramatic features. Uh, Quite a few. So uh, I, hopefully I got it right this time. Yeah, we talked about this the last time. Uh, you've done it. You've done great. Uh, my wife and I said, what, what was the name of that film? The one where uh, the... When young, We Last Spoke. When We Last film. Spoke. The young lady yeah. that was in radio. That was the, yeah, uh, Cloris Leachman. It was her last film. Oh, yes. And, uh, and then uh, Melissa Gilbert, too, was phenomenal. And uh, Corbin Burnson. Uh, then we had two young little girls that are both very... Uh, Famous now in streaming series on Netflix. So it's a great cast and a fun coming of age story and uh, period piece. 
Uh, and, and we had a lot of fun with that. What I love yeah. about your movies, and the same thing with the mulligan, there's this, uh, at the end of the movie, there's this like feel-good feel that you yeah. don't get from most movies today. I yeah. don't care whether they're Christian films or not. Most films, you kind of get to the end of it, at least for me, and, yeah. and sometimes there's a darkness in, in movies. Yeah. But yours, at, at every one we've watched, it was like that was the sweetest thing. I, well, I think people you. need to be doing that. Well, you know, and, and I, I go back to, to, you know, of course, I've had a lot of films that have inspired me over the years, but I'll never f- forget as a, as a high school student uh, with my girlfriend, you know, going to see Rocky, you know, and I literally came out of Rocky punching the air. I was just, <laughs> yeah, I was just, you know, I was, I was just punching the air, you know, it was just, you felt such a high coming off of that. Yeah, it's awesome. And, um, but I want to tell stories that inspire, that encourage, that that uh, give you the the, uh, the the sense of of entertainment and all of that. But at the same time, that have redemptive value, that give you something to live for and really believe in, and believe in yourself. So what greater thing than never give up? I mean, never give up is a perfect story. For now, that. when you would have started filmmaking, film producing, like you do, uh, things weren't like they are right now with regards to Christian films That's right. uh, it, it, they're much bigger today with pure flicks and some of these uh, the kendrick brothers and thinking right. about some of the films like that but you were like a pioneer in this whole area and how did how was it back then when you first did your first film well it's in many ways it's gotten easier because of the technology that we have today uh, my first films were shot on 35 millimeter film uh, we had uh, you know you had a lot of processing that had to happen you had to to send your your stuff to a lab and then get it back the next day and hope it looks good and comes off the way it should so you don't have to reshoot something. Uh, there was a, a lot more technical things we had to do just to make sure we got what we got. Mm-hmm. It was more expensive. And uh, and there were a lot of things that, that, uh, you know, that we did during those days that we have a lot of ability to, like today, we can watch it and then uh, you know, we can see the films shot in a particular scene and then immediately roll it back and look at it. So tell something you can do with work. film. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So uh, the technology is, is your friend in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think for, for us, we've tried to maintain a very high level of quality in that use that technology to, to better what we do. And uh, you know, it, it, it is great to have been doing it as long as I've been doing it. That's why I have all these gray hairs, but uh <laughs> It's and I've earned every one of them, but uh, it, it's been exciting to also see uh, a lot of, of other great storytellers that have come along to uh, to inspire and uplift and even to be a mentor to some of those as they've begun to do that uh, it makes me a real cheerleader for their work and to see. God use them and bless them in so many ways. It's exciting. Well, I'm, one other thing about you, Rick, before we go back over to Brad, uh, I, I know that uh, you were for years, you're a big time musician. And we talked about that the last time you yeah. were with me. And uh, I, I was at the uh, Sinclair or something like That's that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that you learned to play it was a the modern keyboard that was made yeah. kind of a, with film production in mind, right? Yeah, the Sinclair was the very first digital recording uh, keyboard and 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 direct a disc technology, and uh, it was uh, an amazing, you know, two six foot towers worth of drives and opticals and everything else with a keyboard that kind of, uh, you know, would, would sample sounds and 
you know, all the things that we can do on our phone or our computer, <laughs> right. uh, we spent a million dollars to buy a Sinclair to do. Uh, but that was kind of my entree to film, quite honestly. I, I was uh, uh, contracted to Universal Studios and ran post-production at the studio here. And, uh, you know, while I was there, you know, the Sinclair was kind of the hub of everything. Everything yeah. was done in a digital. This was the transition from that 35 millimeter film to a digital technology. Uh, but I tell people, you know, I, I've all of my life I've told stories. Uh, I used to call them songs and they were three minutes long. Now we call them movies, and sometimes they're about two hours long. But uh, it's still all about telling stories. <laughs> that is really wonderfully said. I love that. A three-minute story that is a song. <laughs> that is just great. Let's turn back over to Brad for a moment. Brad, tell us a little bit uh, what it was like for you to be on the set, to being right there watching these tennis players uh, kind of uh, act out what you did in real life. It was, uh, it was one of the best experiences of my life, being on the set and seeing how a movie is made and uh, watching Rob um, direct everybody. They all had earpieces in their ear, and I didn't even know it. And I'm <laughs> sometimes talking to some of the people on the set, and uh, they're kind of looking away like they're listening to somebody else. And I finally realized everybody's got earpieces in. Right. And uh, so they're all talking to each other. And so I had Gosh. to kind of set, you know, stay out of the way. It just seems like everybody on the set was all working together uh, to accomplish, the, you know, a great goal. But, yeah, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I had no idea of how much is involved in making a movie. It's just so much um, talent there's so many different things that it was it was a, it was a thrill now let's go back over to rob for this question rob this uh the the setup of this is the 1985 world games for the deaf right correct so the story development uh, as it goes on what was that like to be directing people in something that happened you know basically what almost 40 years ago now well, it was a challenge, and I think that it was lucky because I wrote it and directed it, so it, you could, I could really have a sense of the story and how to make it work. So the challenge was we'd show Brad at age three, at age five, at age seven, in high school, and in college. Count them. That's five different Brads. So it's five different actors <laughs> that's playing right. Brad. So Rick and I and, and, and Brad spent a long time trying to cast and get the right people in the right roles to look the right way. Rick Eldridge, Rob Lose, and also Brad Minns. The movie is Never Give Up. It's going to come in September, I do believe. That's all my time. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next time right here on The Shepherd.